0: Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Sam. And yeah, maybe just just to start off, would you like to introduce yourself, introduce your background as an industrial designer, and maybe the the key experiences that led you up to where you are today?
1: Uh, sure. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I've listened to a couple of the podcasts. I had a couple of friends turn up on your podcast as well, so that's been uh, pretty interesting to yeah. listen to. Um. So my name is Sam Payne. I am an industrial designer, primarily focused on uh, transportation design. So kind of what got me into the industry, um, I finished school and uh, in the UK, you kind of have a system of either going into what we call sixth form, which is where you kind of stay at school and do multiple subjects, or you can go out to colleges and do, I guess, what you know, more spe- specialized subjects. And I went down the sixth form route, or I thought I wanted to go down the sixth form route, mainly because I had a lot of friends at the particular school that I was looking to go to and when i got there they, they kind of gave me this choice of doing subjects i was always interested in, in design and i thought okay well i want to do uh, dnt mm. and i got the choice of doing that as well as art and then you kind of get told the other subjects that you get to choose because that's just how it fits in with the schedule that they they have so there was something along the lines of uh, uh, i think there was science and maths sort or of, something something along those lines and I'd previously gone to a college um to look look there and they, they were doing something really specialized, what they were calling 3D design. Mm. And on the day that I was supposed to join the sixth form, I kind of I turned around to my mom at that point and said, uh, I don't really want to do this. I want to, I want to go to college. Mm. And from that point on, that's really that was really the starting point you know, where I got into the design industry and started learning about the different, you know, facets that make up um, you know, really, what what you do as a designer. And when I was there, we were doing all these sorts of things like architecture, jewelry design, um, furniture design, all that sort of stuff, products. And uh, my my tutor at the time turned around and said, "Guys, there's um, there's a degree show on at Coventry University for the automotive design uh, school." And we thought, "Oh yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty cool." And my mind my mind was just totally blown you know you get in there and you start thinking wow there's people who are like actually designing cars for a living this is something you do I had no idea about this Mm. you know when I when I when I was you know at that stage of my sort of experience and that was it for me I just thought I've got to I have to go to this university so I went on and applied for the automation of transport course. I was I like cars, but transport as a whole system is kind of where you know where my interest mm. lies. And then during that time at um, Coventry, that was where I met my, my future boss and my first boss outside of university. He was joining us as like a visiting lecturer, just helping out. Mm. And that's that was really kind of um, the roots of where my Professional career started so when I finished um, Coventry I, I sort of thought, well, I don't necessarily just want to specialise in cars. Um, it's certainly something that everyone loves to do, but I think there's you know more broader um, forms of transport to explore, and mm. uh, I've had a bit more of an interest in you know like sustainable transport solutions as well. So it kind of led me led me away from the car design side of it, mm. and ironically. Um, my first job was as industrial designer at a company called JCB um, Excavators. So they sell construction machinery. problem solving, manufacturing, liaising with you know various disciplines within the business, marketing. Um, you know stakeholders chairmen, all that sort of stuff and that's where I kind of founded probably what I would say a lot of my core skills Mm. and inevitably after a few years the you know I started thinking okay am I gonna have to wait for retirement to go and see the world and you know I had a my girlfriend at the time who I was with we kind of had a bit of a chat and decided that you know we want to pack up pack up shop and come and have a look at the world and we chose we chose Australia as our kind of go-to place and basically just lived as backpackers for a year which mm. was a, quite quite an interesting change of pace. You have to be mm. you know it's very, very different. but I'm very allowed uh, to be quite organized. So that was kind of useful for the travels and when we started off in Hobart and then we ended up in Cairns, that was kind of like the whole trip. Mm. And the original plan was to, do, like all, most backpackers, was to do some farm work. And I kind of thought, uh, I'm going to pass. I've had way too many terrible stories about you know not being paid and having to work nine months mm. and all that sort of stuff. So I thought, all right, I'll fire out a couple of emails to you know to people in Sydney, companies in Sydney, and. We just booked some plane tickets. And fortunately, the day that we were due to come into Sydney, I, I got an email back from a transportation consultancy called IDA. They said, oh, um, yeah, come in and have a chat. And I went in, had a chat. And funnily enough, they had someone else who was a backpacker working for them who was basically leaving the day that I arrived. So there was there was a job on Burfer oh. that... I did that for six months so we were working across quite a quite a range of products so anything from medical uh consumer products to uh, transport so a lot of a lot of work in the rolling stock industry and at that point the my employer now he he was a client and just took a bit of a shine to me and when i inevitably you know you have conversations about sponsorship and so on and so forth and that's always um yeah it's quite a complex process to mm. go down so we, nothing really came to fruition and we went back to the UK and I started looking around for um, another job uh, I went back to JTB to see you know what was going on there um there was an I went to an interview with a company called David Gordon Design. They were mainly doing trains again. And then I went to, for an interview at a company called Design Q. So they were doing a lot of uh, like business jets, um, aviation, cars, and all that sort of stuff, aircraft seats. And I had um, a few, you know, an offer from each one. And uh, inevitably, because I have a preference to try and, you know, try myself in as many industries as I can. Mm. I ended up going with design Q, and that, you know, that was turned out to be a great choice. Um, I arrived at the job the first day and I was working on a a VTOL project for Airbus and I thought, okay, well, this is, this is pretty cool. Mm. Um, And then within a few weeks, I got a, I got an email from my now employer to say, Oh, I want you to come back to Sydney. I'm setting up a, internal design team and that took about a year to you know come to fruition once you get through all the paperwork and i've been here for now uh, probably about probably about six years uh,
0: Yeah, so it's hey, been, you've been on such a journey across countries back and forward it's quite it's amazing
1: uh. yeah I, i'm not sure i'm keen on moving another time across <laughs> the world it's quite it's quite a track but it's been Yeah, I didn't think my career would ever allow me to do that, so that's definitely Mm. a bonus.
0: That's the flexibility about design, I suppose, is you can kind of work cross countries. Like you you don't even really need the language sometimes, as long as you've got that kind of design language, you can really you're you're quite flexible where you can work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the pandemic actually enabled design Mm. a lot more remotely. Um, You know, like we spent two years working from our own homes across across projects in china america and europe mm. and as we didn't really run into any hitches it was just more the fact that you couldn't visit the client personally which is you know something i still highly value that but mm. there's also a level of efficiency to it as well now
0: mm. yeah i mean australia in some ways has been limited in the past from being so far away geographically from the rest of the world um but i mean with the way the world is moving now i feel like it's becoming less and less of a limitation we can kind of work internationally in that way um as you said it's never the same but yeah it kind of opens up that possibility a lot more than before Mm. yeah
1: i was was actually quite surprised um, about australian design to be honest because Mm. i really knew nothing about the design industry within australia i just knew that ford had a studio down in melbourne and quite you know a few of my friends from university ended up there and Mm. it's quite uh, i think australia is quite an underrated powerhouse of design once you once you get here and start to understand what people are doing and what they have Mm. done it's it's, you know it's it's on the same level or above quite a lot of the world and Mm. that came it didn't come as a shock but it came as quite a pleasant surprise once once i really sort of found my feet Mm.
0: yeah i suppose it comes down to probably the flexibility of australian designers as well because we're that smaller market, you kind of have to be able to be a bit of a jack of all trades like, like yourself who've worked in a few different organizations and can kind of take on roles as, as they need to.
1: I think it's quite evident in some of the products that are being you know, developed inside Australia, especially for markets like the U S um, China, for example, even really to market into Australia as well. So it's, I think the flexibility of Australian design is really what, you know, is really what the enabler is there.
0: Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah. Well, you've moved, you've moved on a few different fields, you know, from automotive design to somewhat classic industrial design. Um, And, and I mean, I feel like with automotive designers, a lot of people say they're an automotive designer, but they mainly focus on cars, whereas you've really had that flexibility. Um, What challenges do you think, like from from my perspective, it seems almost like an unachievable task going from designing a train to designing a plane to designing a car. Um, you know, what is the challenges of kind of flipping between different modes of transport? Um, is there common design challenges, or is it quite different from mode to mode?
1: Um, so in terms of transport, I mean, you 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 kind of tend to look at it as um like a collective. So they call it mass, like mobility mm. as a service. And that's one of the key things. So like, for example, when we're talking about rolling stock design and you start talking about the passenger experience and you start honing down into that technical aspect of, you know, how are we going to design this train? But mm. if you take a passenger experience approach to to it and mm. how it integrates into, for example, the city or a wider network, the passenger experience essentially starts at the door. The minute, mm. the minute you leave the door or even before when you're, interacting with the app that you might be booking your train ticket mm. on, for example. So, you know, people might take their electric scooter down to, down to the train station. They'll take the train to the airport. They'll take a flight from Sydney to Melbourne, for example. You know, that's so after, I think the reality is, is you have to kind of te- step back and take a broader look at it. Mm. It comes down to designing specific modes of transport. There's there's always quite prescriptive standards, and methodologies that are, tend to be followed so mm. you know tenders bids and gate processes in terms of the development so there's not mo- there's not really much difficulty in terms of transferring development skills like how how a mobility system is developed the mm. difficulty is in terms of learning the nuances of those spe- specific systems so mm. the expectations on a aircraft that totally different to the expectations on the train and you know some are more conservative some are more sort of adventurous industries and I just kind of had to riff it until I really got that understanding and Mm. I've just like just in my instance I've been pretty lucky to just be surrounded by the right people That's, Mm. that's really all it's been but I think if designers can take that system approach rather than just a specific individual item then they're going to be able to apply those skills you know quite quite widely we're starting to i'm starting to see like quite a cross-pollination of skills and ideas between areas like automotive you're seeing automotive design becoming more autonomous mm. a more bus-like applications buses are becoming more well, some of them are you know they're talking about light rail vehicles trackless trams all those sorts of things and you're starting to see that crossover mm. you know uh, coming there and i think everyone from each industry has value to put into other sectors and I think Mm. that's really what it's going to be about it's going to be about collaborative approaches Mm. um, you know to those transportation modalities
0: yeah it's, it's going to be interesting to see where the world goes like the the narrative of what is seen as a classic vehicle might completely change in the coming years you know as we move away from the experience of driving a car to the experience of the car driving itself what is the passenger going to do and like How is that going to change the whole experience and the whole dynamic? It's an interesting time. Yeah,
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, I don't know personally how sold I am on autonomous car ownership. It Mm. it sort of, to me, defeats the the point a little. It's, Mm. I'm either taking the journey, like I either don't want to own the car and not have the expense, but I want private ride from A to B, Mm. or I want to be able to just, walk down to the station and get on the train and not have to worry about anything. Mm. For me personally, it's like a, it's a bit of a gray area at the moment in terms Mm. of what these autonomous cars are trying to achieve.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be a really hard time going forward as well as like, I mean, in Australia we have a massive industry of people who are just passionate about cars and want to drive their car on the weekends. And, you know, I mean, I'm a motorbike rider myself, but it's the same kind of deal um it's going to be hard to convince people that they're not going to be able to drive their vehicle normally anymore um they have to let the vehicle drive itself because from a safety aspect having non-autonomous drivers on the road is a safety risk but at the same time not having any control of the car is you know it takes away all the enjoyment out of driving so it's yeah, hard to exactly. Level it.
1: yeah exactly i mean i i don't i don't own a car here because public transport for me is pretty pretty accessible and Mm. you know we went back to the UK recently and I I got back into my old manual golf that's been souped up a little bit and I was just right right, you know back when I was 18 just Mm. really enjoying that hands-on driving experience so for me that's kind of where the good experiences lie Mm. Um, if it goes to autonomous I don't you know I don't know exactly how I feel about it just yet Mm. but Definitely I think there's opportunities there. And I think mm. this is why we're seeing a shift in how a lot of the um automotive OEMs are starting to, mm. you know, start to think a little bit broader in terms of capacity, car sharing and all that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I drove through Sydney um a week ago and I can say that I would not want to be doing it again. <laughs> so I feel like I feel like definitely in a city, it makes a lot of sense to have autonomous vehicles or at least really good public transport.
1: Yeah, I mean people are stressed enough, aren't they? You yeah. if you ever get to the center of Sydney, it's just it's it's too much of a high stress environment to want yeah. to add another layer on top of that, really. So mm. that's that's really where I would stand on it. I just want outside of I just want the easy life to mm. to happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely an interesting space being in and um would do you think you like have you explored other areas of industrial design um, in your past and you know, have you found your passion for this field or would you be interested in moving into something else like that in the future?
1: No, I'm, I've always been, I mean, this is kind of where I've stayed with where I am at the moment is mm-hmm. like, whilst we are primarily a transportation consultancy, we've done a lot of work in various areas. It's, uh, uh, our our managing director is pretty open to ideas and not someone who will say, no, you, you can't do that. That's, we just do, trains and that's our bread and butter Mm. Um, we've done projects along the lines of furniture for example Um, we've done consumer products doing a range of bike parts at the moment Uh, on the face value really what we market ourselves at is is basically mobility Mm. so i'm I'm quite lucky that i do get to do all aspects in-house Um, yeah. basically it's always a case of as long as we're leveraging our internal expertise, then whatever sector that applies to, we're quite happy to, you know, to explore. So mm-hmm. I, 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 even the other day, you know, I was happily just sketching away at furniture design and that's, I, I enjoy it. It's, it, you know, you get that transferable skill from designing like a passenger, you know, passenger seat for an airplane through to, you know, a piece of furniture that someone might have in their house. Mm. Form changes, but you know the, the sort of core principles of comfort, look, ergonomics, sustainability. How is it made? What what materials are you using? They're they're, they're completely transferable.
0: Mm. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned sustainability. How does sustainability play a role in in the organisation you're currently working in?
1: Yeah, um, so it's quite interesting because if we if we talk about the client side of it for a, mm. for a second the the rolling stock industry has kind of been on a pedestal where they've always been known as one of the most sustainable modes of transport in mm. terms of how many you know how many people you can transfer per you know mm. per carbon part so the one of the issues i do see in the industry is mainly like they there's a tendency to stay as it is and there's you know there's everything is like steel structure has to last x amount of years and this the standards that go along with that don't tend to develop for new materials so when you start talking about things like fire performance and all that sort of stuff then you do tend to get limited to materials that aren't necessarily as sustainable as they need Mm. to be so from that side of things we're pushing quite hard um, to help redefine those standards Mm. Um, to work with suppliers to find materials that do meet that that compliance as well, so that we can use something in, that is you know a lot more sustainable. Um, really, where like from the industrial design side of things, that's that's where we sort of sit. You know, we we have that responsibility to inject sustainability every part part of the design process because more often than not, you know, these trains are on the track for thirty or forty years and potential to the decision that you make at this point in the development process is still going to affect people in a either positive or negative way 30 or mm. 40 years in the future. And that's kind of what you've got to think about mm. from the engineering aspects. We're quite heavy into composites. So in terms of lightweight engineering. Mm. Um, so that's something that we've been quite heavily involved in on a few projects that have gone into service, particularly, particularly in China. Um, whereby we're reducing the structural weight of the vehicle by up to 30 or 40 percent which mm. is when you start talking about wear and tear energy needed to mm. move people passenger capacity and axle loads then the composites do offer real long-term benefits mm. the issues that you tend to run into with transportation especially mass transportation is basically price mm. and as a lot of these projects are kind of influenced by which government is in at which time, then the fund, you know, that there doesn't seem to be too much of a thought process of long-term cost benefit versus mm. short-term upfront, you know, um, costs. And that's that's kind of where it's a bit interesting in trying to convince people that things need to be lighter. They need to be engineered better. Mm. You need to look at additive manufacturing, for example, in terms of printing parts on demand, shorten the supply chain, all that sort of stuff that kind of helps reduce your carbon footprint on the project.
0: Mm. Yeah, I suppose it's hard to balance as well, because a lot of the time trains in Australia or anywhere will be adopted for, you know, twenty, thirty, like even I've seen trains on the road that look like on the tracks that look like they're from the 1970s or older, um, yeah. where I'm from in Brisbane. And like when you're building something that's going to be in function for that long, sometimes you know using less sustainable materials that are going to be better for durability is sometimes a balance that's worth making, um, because you know, like you can you could you could choose a sustainable option, but will it last you know that much time? That's the that's the struggle, and we don't know sometimes as well. So.
1: Yeah, it's um it's an interesting one as well, like because really the real realistically with these composites, they kind of eliminate. The, we're going a bit engineering here, but they tend to eliminate fatigue cracking. So in theory, they could last forever. Mm. They're repairable. Whereas um with the steel structures, there's tend to be, you know, a cycle of repair, repair mm. and maintenance, which is not only costly, but does it does that really need to happen? So that's why we're we're particularly interested in exploring new materials. And what we're lobbying for at the moment is an update to basically the standards and the procurement Mm. processes to enable people to innovate Mm. in what I would probably call a reasonably conservative industry.
0: Mm. What type of composite materials do you use? Like are they derived from natural material or something?
1: No, no. uh, So carbon fiber. Yeah. It's carbon fiber.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. See, even carbon fiber, like it's, it's a hard one because it's so bad for the environment. If, damaged and like sanded or anything like that, or even just producing it's really bad for the environment. But then like longevity, it lasts for a really long time and it's super strong. This is the thing with sustainability is like it's always a balance and it's always hard to say something is 100 percent sustainable or like this is the best decision for sustainability. As it's hard yeah. to it weight all up yeah.
1: yeah, exactly. And you know, this is like what we're sort of doing at the moment is we're looking into a few partnerships with other design consultancies. So I've got um some colleagues in the UK that we're looking to work with, with particularly pertaining to um, sustainability in aviation and rolling stock. And what they bring to the table is more sustainability on the, you know, the materials side of it. So interior plastics, mm. fabrics and all that side of it. What we put on the table is really the optimization of mm. structural design and composites. So you know, composites have been around in the aviation industry for a very long time, and the rolling stock industry, I'd say, is due due to catch up. Hopefully, at some point, but there is there's a reason for all of it, and if it means that there's less traction wear or less energy needed, less, mm. less infrastructure needed, you know, that's that's a benefit, mm. potentially benefit in my opinion.
0: Yeah, definitely. In your in your current role, you're moving on from the traditional role as an industrial designer into a more um management level as a designer. Um, how do you how did you find that move and how has that really changed the way you you look at design as a whole?
1: Um I actually I'll be honest with you, I found it quite difficult because I was basically the first and first industrial design employee in the company. So there wasn't really, in terms of design management, there wasn't much guidance. I've mm. kind of like I landed I landed in Sydney and then within I think a week I was off to China to meet meet our colleagues on a project for a high-speed train and you know you sort of land and you go oh my god like what the what the hell have I done I have no idea what I'm doing and it's it's kind of just trial for me it's been trial by fire Mm. Um, but then also I guess a lot of self-reflection and not self-criticism, but just looking for areas where, okay, is that is that a really efficient way of doing it? Is that not? Um, but as I've kind of grown into the role, I've kind of I've become more interested in the business of design. The the design process is something in and of itself, but there, you know, behind that, there's always a business that needs to make money and feed its employees and mm. keep its clients happy. And, you know, that's how. People like yourself and i keep our you know keep our jobs and i think it was there was you know just to reference another podcast there was um an interview with um Gerald kiska and i think it was uh, crown and filters and the way he talks about the business of design really you know really resounded with me and that's where i you know i sort of thought okay there's there's a different way of thinking about this rather than just sitting there and doing the design work mm. Uh, I'm quite lucky that I do get to do both we're not we're a pretty small team so it's not like I'm managing 50 people and you know that's all I do is excel spreadsheets and presentations so Mm. I still do get to be involved in a lot of the day-to-day design work pen to paper CAD visualization Mm. so you know that's what keeps me keeps me here and keeps me happy
0: Mm. yeah definitely well, I mean, the design process, I feel like you can apply it to a lot of different roles. You could definitely apply it to even a management sense, um, you know, using that process within the organization and organizing all the clients and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I feel like you're probably, you know, using your skills in that way anyway. It's just a different application. So.
1: Yeah, it's, um, I mean, you've, it's like uh, they call it like design as a service, really. Mm. It's, it's not just analyzing the products that maybe a company might have. It's okay. well, how does how does design work within your company? How is it? How is it communicated? What you know, what sort of assets do you need to enable that, or to enable people to think a little bit more creatively? Mm. I think it's you know it's always been shown that design-led businesses often do very very well.
0: Mm. Yeah, definitely. How do you foster that? You know that teamwork approach within the organization, foster collaboration and mm. and things like that that would benefit the overall success.
1: I, I would actually say the leader of that is is our. Uh, our boss he's he's instilled that from day one it's i mean we're a very small team there's well there's only four of us in the office at the moment and that's engineering design and additive manufacturing and we're always looking for a way to bring that all together some projects might just be pure engineering some are just pure design you know you do get the odd you know the odd project coming where everything is needed so just just asking questions like i i probably constantly annoy my engineering colleagues and by asking them you know really stupid questions about you know how can i do this what if i do it this way could i print this this way would would this work and Mm. try and you know sometimes trying to offer my input on an engineering issue and Mm. you know just from a different perspective and that's kind of you know that's when the sort of guard goes down and egos are lost and you kind of just know that you're all working collectively to just better each other
0: mm. yeah definitely i mean it's really important to foster those relationships as well even in my current role now i work with a lot of people in the manufacturing floor and just like building yeah. up that relationship so when something goes wrong or when you just don't know something about the their processes you can just ask them and you know keep that relationship building it's very important
1: yeah absolutely and i think it's just be it's just about being curious really mm. it's you know it, no one knows everything and there's always there's always value to someone else's opinion or expertise and there might be you know little snippet within whatever they say to you that you know really changes the way you think or Mm. you go okay I know I can I can use that to add value somewhere else and it's just um it's just really about being open-minded I think that's that's really you know to me that's kind of like actually a core skill of our industry Mm. to to be open-minded and don't always assume that we know everything mm. and to ask questions constantly, because we need to, you know, challenge, challenge the norms or gain understanding, you know, in other areas that we may not, you know, have that sort of expertise.
0: Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, how have you, how have you kind of focused uh, your, your personal detail orientated approach to design? Like, is is that, is detail, is being detail oriented something important that you see as important in your role, or is it something that you believe that all designers don't necessarily need to have?
1: Uh, I think detail orientation is certainly important. I think it depends on where in the sort of development process you might be used. If you're, you know, if you're working in like a really large consultancy and you're doing sort of like initial concept design, you definitely have to have an understanding of the details that you know to maybe enable your colleagues further down the line to you know bring this product to fruition Mm. i think the detail side of it came from the work that i did at jcb because we were like when when i joined there was there was this massive um overhaul of the products for what they were calling i think it was tier if i remember tier four interim so it was like an emissions regulation and everything had to be redesigned you know you're talking hundreds of products so that was the big opportunity to redo the brand in terms of the you know the physical language of the brand. Um, but also, you know, we had to get directly involved pretty quickly with manufacturing and engineering. It's it was mm. absolutely nece- necessary to do that. So you you inevitably end up in those details discussions almost almost straight away, even you know, even though I was still learning, I you know, I had a basic knowledge of. Alias at that point, and mm-hmm. you know all well, that sort of thing. But it was, yeah, it was really led by my, well, influenced by my boss at that point. And when we, when the, there was four of us who joined JCB all at the same time for Coventry, and you were just assigned a product range to develop, and you just live and breathe that till till it's all signed off, it's gone through mm-hmm. the gate process. The you know the prototypes are up in the quarry, and they're they're putting the hours into basically to test it so I think that was just ingrained in a really early part of my career mm. Um, which maybe that's a good thing or a bad thing uh, I think it's still important to sometimes just step away and create loose ideas you know that's mm. otherwise you kind of get a little bit you know everything especially if you're doing stuff for yourself it becomes a little bit too um, you know too overdone or too uh, you know too much effort goes into it rather than okay, maybe I can have a little bit more value doing a couple of various things a bit more loosely. So I think it's really just down to the individual to decide as and when the detail is really needed Mm. and at what point.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've noticed that in my role already. Sometimes when the brief is so well-defined, you don't have the flexibility to kind of, you know, experiment and make something a bit different, make something maybe that wasn't necessarily thought of um So in that way, like having a very detailed brief opposed to having something a little bit more loose can be can be beneficial in that way as well. Not even just from the designer side. So.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that's. I mean, when you get like a really prescriptive brief, I mean yeah. that is essentially what we're trying to do at that point is creative creative problem solving. Mm-hmm. It's, it's you know we have to look at the project through a different lens sometimes to say okay, well you know if we maybe take this approach you know that is within the brief but it's not necessarily within what you might call like a standard
2: mm.
1: expectation of how we've always done things and that's that's probably sometimes where you can sort of say well I think I can add some market value to this product I think mm. I can add like, you know maybe we can consider this material instead because we can then add a greater degree of sustainability we can drive costs down so I think there's there's always room for a bit of creativity but mm. I think, um, you know, if you're if you're sort of taking just a really loose pen sketch and trying to turn that into a final product, you you inevitably have to add some sort of, you know, prescriptive restrictions to it with manufacturing processes or even you know, client you know client needs as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, what are the various challenges you've experienced as an industrial designer within the field? Maybe even talking to the challenges of being industrial designer in Australia versus overseas.
1: Um. Okay. So in Australia, I think yeah that like like you pointed out earlier, the market is pretty small. So we have found difficulty sometimes in terms of like engagement with um, maybe Europe and those sort of areas, particularly. You know, I found that particularly on larger scale projects where we could still add value but you know we we just we just happen to be on a different time zone mm-hmm. but I think um I think one of the difficulties that I've seen and I feel like it is changing a bit is just expressing the value of design mm-hmm. um and I, I know that's kind of come up on your podcast before when you know like for example when you spoke to Nathan at mm-hmm. Castle. but I think that is an industry wide thing that really we're all pushing for is that education of the you know the value of design not not only for for the brand but also for for business and that's partly where that interest in the you know the business of design is mm-hmm. you you know you can sell sell the product on the way it looks and functions but if you can also add that you know that understanding of the commercial value of the investment then that's that's where you're going to get onto a winner it's just a case of educating People who may not have looked at their products or their brand through, you know, the lens of a designer before—that's um, that's the sort of job that we've, you know, we've got to do, and the sort of difficulties that we've got ahead of us.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'm lucky. My current role—I'm working for a design-led organization. The operations manager is, now, is actually an ex-industrial designer, um, so he's like, there's no need to win that battle. Like, kind of yeah. acknowledged in the business that design is very important, and it's kind of an integral part of. The way the business operates um but yeah i could definitely see i i feel like there's definitely more businesses that are realizing the value and especially like manufacturing businesses they're kind of seeing the value of having an in-house team or, or having a very much underpinned um yeah design business in the business yeah yeah but um i suppose yeah the battles are still to be won I,
1: well, I think even like um, you start starting to get a lot of the sales and marketing teams coming mm. coming over to that side of it so you know for example we they understand the sort of psychology of design and presentation that's that's you know that's like core of what of what we're doing we're trying to convince people to buy to buy into our ideas and our products and you know we're finding more and more we're getting requests for for example configurators you know using like unreal engine to develop configurators or immersive vr experiences mm. and you know we we start to use those those sort of um what would we call them tools mm. The process but also after the process mm. and it's it's okay we've developed what design we've nurtured it all the way through now let's kind of do that big push to get it out the door and get it marketable mm. I,
2: think,
1: I think a lot of agencies now are offering that as really a service it's the it's the the building of the assets to really you know enable um a market impact on the products that they they develop with their clients
0: mm. Yeah. You mentioned VR. VR is probably the most applicable to your industry the way I mm-hmm. see it anyway. Um, I did a, my final assignment at uni was designing a motorbike and yeah, yeah So it, well, I did, I did other stuff as well, but that was like, yeah, part of the design. And I found just sitting in VR over the motorbike. So amazing. Like being able to really experience how it looks to scale. Um, and I can just imagine designing a train would be the same, like being inside the train, seeing how the user would interact with the seats. Have you, you, has the business had experience with with those kind of processes?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we we do use VR a lot. Um, It's, we tend to use it at uh, maybe strategic points within a project because there's often quite a lot of work to get stuff into the headset, get it optimized. So it'll either be early on where we might do, you know, quite a low fidelity um, design review. So you're not really looking at the materials and the finishes and getting all the bump maps to work perfectly, but we're looking at maybe the overall train layout and, you know, taking someone through that journey from front to back.
2: Hmm.
1: But we also use it a lot in development of areas like the driver's cabs, for example, you know, these, these guys have quite a big input on and say in terms of the space that they operate in Hmm. and instead of spending, you know, tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars building high fidelity mock-ups, it's, it's really about, right, let's get a wooden buck in place let's get these guys in and get them to see how you know see what they feel about the layout and the mm. sight lines and all that sort of stuff um that's where it definitely adds value early on and then when you start to get to the sales and marketing side of it we do find there's more attend like there's a shift towards more like refined animations mm. or quite highly highly refined virtual reality experiences mm. It's, it's quite interesting though, because we're now like with this recent integration of like Google API into mm. into Unreal, you can basically import any part of the world into Unreal and just draw up your yeah, draw up your train track and bang the the trains in situ. And mm. it's, it's yeah, it's pretty it's pretty awesome technology that we're exploring at the moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely interesting to see where VR goes. I, I think. As far as industrial design, from a, from a small product standpoint, it might be limited long term. But you know, from a from designing a train application, like I just think it's, I don't see any any place where it could be more applicable, and um, you know, to really feel like you're immersed in that. And I was also thinking, it's interesting how you mentioned that you brought the um, the drivers of the train into into and be immersed in it. I feel like that's a perfect yeah. way to understand the needs of the user. And I mean, yeah. Yeah. it's it's interesting that the organization took that approach in design.
1: Well, I think there's, there's, you know, there's a little bit of sort of um, psychology as well to it because these guys want to be engaged early on. Yeah. And, you know, if you bring them in in an early stage of the process, then it's a lot easier to all work together rather than having that standoff where the design's sort of semi-finalized. Okay, now we need the input, where, which is kind of what I've seen before. Mm. And like, you know, a good example would be probably at JCB where, there was a, a lot of product and engineering development, and then you get, you know, all the all the test test drivers in later on, and they're like, "Nah, no, nah, no, nah, throw it out. It's, it's all crap. We're not, you know, we're not using this. This doesn't work. This isn't how we use it. Whereas, you know, from an engineering and design standpoint, they were thinking, "Okay, this is this is where this logically fits. This is where this logically goes." And the big shift that I noticed at JCB was when we brought in in-house ergonomists. Who mm. are engaging with them really, really early on to understand exactly you know what are the functions, where does this need to be? Mm. You start building those low fidelity mock-ups, you know, with magnets and stuff for them to move things around. And the end the end result is always a better product.
2: Mm.
1: Engaging That's... with people early on through whatever means necessary, whether it is mock-ups or VR, is just to me critically important. Mm. you wouldn't you wouldn't develop a consumer product without talking to the market beforehand and for these larger transportation projects that's you've got to get everyone involved early Mm. yeah definitely
0: yeah um i was watching this video the other day about trains actually it's quite interesting about the design trains early on and they were talking about how trains were originally designed to look fast Um, before they were designed to be aerodynamic which is quite interesting so they didn't know that um you know having an aggressive pointy looking train was actually better for for aerodynamics and they kind of just made it look like that because they thought it looked faster um and then it kind of bled onto that in the same way how do you balance aesthetics of a train um, or aesthetics of anything with the the functionality and the you know the intention of the design
1: yeah um a lot of it just depends on where it's operating and you know Mm -hmm. what this um maybe cultural expectations are so the one of the biggest projects we did for china was the winter olympic train which wasn't just supposed to be sort of like the pinnacle of you know their, their high-speed network but they originally i think we started with a nine meter front end and you know you have a quite a specific aerodynamic coefficient that you kind of want to hit and a lot of people were, you know, doing various designs and the aerodynamic coefficiency wasn't coming back so good. And then, you know, someone further on goes, oh, it would look good if it has 11 meters on the front end, which, you know, totally changes a lot of the requirements that we have to work around, you Mm. know, the crash area, driver sight lines and all that sort of stuff. But the design design that we did was pretty adaptable to that change and it was just a case of keep it simple, uh, keep it logical. And that's where we utilized our, you know, our engineering team because we just mm. have the aerodynamic software to mm. be <laughs> able to do that. So we just kind of eliminated a lot of the guesswork um up front. And then we know what we, you know, we knew what we could achieve pretty quickly.
0: Mm. Do you do you guys generally work on Australian trains or do you or do you work mostly on international projects? Cause I mean, in Australia, especially where some of the places I've been, the trains seem to be quite limited. It doesn't seem like we've got much money being pumped into um you know australian train infrastructure so i'd be quite interested to see who the main customers are yeah
1: yeah i mean look there's definitely a lot of infrastructure that needs to be there Mm -hmm. and there's Mm. you know there's quite a few projects going on there's the suburban loop in melbourne there's Mm. the western sydney airport at the moment um there's one up in brisbane as well it's happening at the moment so the the investment is there if you but if you You know, if you compare it to like China, for example, who Mm. are designed, you know, they've built this whole high-speed train network within 10 to 15 years, then Mm. yeah, the development process is a bit slower in Australia. Mm. Um, We do work in Australia. Um, You know, we work with a lot of the OEM, um, you know, manufacturers, but we also work a lot with like the local authorities and the, you know, the people who are actually providing the, the network and the services. Um, but I would say probably predominantly most of our work has been overseas.
0: Yep. Yeah. No. yeah. It'd be interesting to see I'm, I'm from Brisbane and, um, yeah, they're building the new interrail train the What is it called? The, um, uh, it has a name anyway, and, um,
1: uh, QM, Q it's QM something. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be interesting to
0: see if it makes a difference. I don't know. We, we still only have overground trains, so, um, surely it's going to make some difference, but, but yeah, it'd be interesting. Um, how do you see the space of, of train design and you know automotive design in general um, evolving in the coming years? We've already mentioned autonomy. Any any other changes you see as being really integral to the future? Um
1: I think what I'm definitely seeing in terms of the rolling stock industry is multimodal spaces. So people are kind of trying to use their time a bit differently um, on the trains. And that's really what I expect will like in some cases, you know, after COVID. A lot of the operators are starting to find that actually the patronage is down, and that's because people have realised, okay, well maybe I don't need to be in the office. Maybe mm. I'm not as productive on the train as I want to be. Mm. And I'm definitely seeing a lot of development um, in terms of these, you know, modular passenger spaces or multifunctional multifunctional spaces, um, particularly on like the longer, you know, like the longer journeys. Mm. As well. That seems that seems to be a, a very key theme. Mm. And for the operator, that ability to sort of refit a train for specific purposes quickly is something that I'm seeing a lot of. Mm. yeah, that's that's I think that's one of the key things. It's going to be that multifunctional asset that a lot of them want to develop.
0: Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, as far as your career, you've obviously worked across many countries in different spaces. What is what is what are any key lessons that you feel like you have picked up along the way that would have really benefited you early on in your career? Oh
1: man, that's a good question. Key key lessons. <sighs> you, I think um, I think uh, probably the, maybe not a key lesson, but the key one of the key realizations that I had is just to kind of let uh, let go of my ego. I think that was the biggest biggest change for me and I I think I I found coming out of university you've got you know I've got my first job doing Mm. all this stuff and then yeah there's this you know sort of ego that creeps in and thinking that you know everything and that's Mm. the the biggest change and the biggest benefit to enable me to talk to the right people and learn from them and grow is really just letting go of that Mm. I think that's you know I think that's something that's applicable to not just the, your career, but outside of your outside of your career is just mm. you know learning how to just talk to people on the same level and mm. you know, just being like always being a student, not necessarily thinking that you're the master at all at all points. Mm. That was that was probably the biggest change for me, and just that willingness to engage with people as well. You know, I'm I'm quite happy to talk and hear anyone's idea from you know any any background it doesn't matter whether they're you know they're just someone with this idea that they came up with overnight or if they're you know if it's a multinational corporation that wants to try and achieve a certain goal mm. just sort of giving everyone a chance because everyone has value to add
0: mm. yeah definitely not not putting yourself on the pedestal as being a designer and then being you know a non-designer like anyone is open to feedback and anyone has valuable feedback it's yeah it's a good it's a good lesson yeah
1: definitely just don't take things personally if it doesn't mm. it's not necessarily what someone wants or it doesn't hit the right mark straight away I think um you know I think a lot of people like we said earlier you can get carried away in the details and mm. then you realize actually this isn't what they wanted this is kind of what I wanted and mm. you know I think that's that's a key thing is just not to take it personally and don't get disheartened when things don't necessarily go the way you want them because mm. it's always an opportunity in the future to. Either learn from what's what has happened or try and understand how you can engage you know mm. with that person or that process or that opportunity in a different way mm.
0: yeah I found that even so far in my career being not learning to take feedback well and not be self-critical of yourself I think designers and you know creatives in general we we're probably some of the most self-critical people out there um yeah. you know but like learning to distance yourself from that and just take criticism or feedback as just a learning experience to to build yourself up. It's a good way to look at. Yeah. yeah,
1: I, I think look, what I'm seeing, uh, what I'm seeing from a lot of like your generation of designers, which I think is really great, is just that um that confidence to engage with the industry. And mm. Like when I was, you know, when I was sort of back at university, you kind of put them all on a pedestal, and they were, you know, these big, bad, scary people who were mm. you know, too good to talk to you. And that's not always, you know, that's not always really what it's mm. about. And I think you know when you get people like yourself who are talking to a wide variety of you know designers and architects and whatever they're Mm. people wanting to understand you know the variety of the industry that you work within I think that's going to enable a lot of people you know enable your audience to you know Mm. think about things that they may not have thought of or understand things but also you know like for yourself when you you might take something away from a a conversation that you have that you may have, you may have never been able to, you know, get that information in the first place and that willingness to just be open and listen to people and talk to them,
2: Mm. you
1: know, taking that step to talk to them. You find most of the time people want to talk. And Mm, I think that's a really good thing that a lot of the young designers are doing right now is just, just coming, you know, coming to the table for a chat
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, initially I was like, I don't want to start a podcast because I'm not a designer yet. I'm at, in university. Um, You know, do I have the credibility to to start a podcast, but at the same time, you know, just, just willing to chat to people and talk to them. I feel like it's all you really need. And, you know, I'd recommend anyone to start their own podcast or, you know, make some sort of social media or YouTube channel or whatever, because it's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Absolutely. It's a, well, it's a community, isn't it? It's all mm. you know, mm. right. It's, Agencies are in some way competitive to each other, but that doesn't mean that designers as individuals or groups are, are you know competitive. It's it's mm. a community that you can either choose to engage with or you can choose not to. And I think that's mm. you know what I what I'm starting to see is most people want to engage. And that's I think that's a really good thing. It's mm. not just going to benefit people's personal growth, but it you know benefits the clients that we end up, you know, we end up gaining.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, from my personal experience, I've found that nearly 100% of people I've spoken to are willing to come on the podcast. Yes. And, you know, even from day one, when I first started off, um, one of the first people I had on was a pretty famous international designer. And realistically, they had no reason to come on from any sort of promotional reason. You know, I, I wasn't really offering them anything, but they were just willing to come on because they're passionate about what they do. And like that's that's the benefit of our field. People aren't that necessarily there for money a lot of the time they're there because they they really enjoy what they do and then money is just an extra
1: yeah no exactly and i think that's it you know there's like all right we need we all need to put food on the table mm. and keep the roof over, over our heads but I don't think you know if you wanted to just look at money then you'd probably go into a different industry right yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: um yeah maybe just to to you know finish on some interesting topics um you've you've developed a lot over your career um have you have you taken on many um younger designers you know graduates and things like that um, along the way and like how would you give advice to to people in that position you know my colleagues um from university how can they make that first break into their career um and you know get a role that that's going to fulfill them
1: yeah okay um so yeah in terms of uh, i guess you know fostering younger younger designers mm-hmm. um that is yeah i've had yeah, quite a bit of experience doing that. Um, we took on a lot of um, uh, internships at JCB, so that was probably my first opportunity to bring someone onto the team. And you know, during that time, he actually developed quite a unique position for himself in terms of the visualization. Mm-hmm. And he then stayed on at JCB to do that because he was just he was just really bloody good at it. Mm-hmm. And he's moved on to Jag Land Rover now, so that's you know that's kind of awesome to see. Mm. Um, so and then the, yeah I had the same same thing at Design Q so when we were there there's a couple of you know there was a intern at that point from Coventry Uni and you know he's become you know a good good mate of mine and now uh, where, is, where is he now I think he's at Aston Martin doing that mm. side of thing. so um I would I would like to get that sort of thing happening at for Dino definitely mm. um it's something that we haven't done yet, and I, I really, you know, I kind of get to the point in your career where you kind of like, well, I kind of want to give something back. Mm. I don't want to just sit doing the day-to-day stuff. I want to enable someone else to continue mm. making those advances in in our industry. So that's definitely something that I really want to implement in, you know, in the studio that we're currently in, mm. but i i think my advice in terms of young designers would be just don't be afraid to ask for feedback and Mm. you know just approach people 90 percent of the people will be more than willing to look over your portfolio or consider you coming in for an internship or even a job even if it's not advertised you've just got to ask and Mm. you know have that confidence to do it you know it it never it doesn't come across as arrogance if you're asking it's 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 really a case of, you know, like we went back to the curiosity and Mm. that Mm. willingness to engage with the industry and someone might come back and give you, you know, all right, it might be a bit of a harsh review on your portfolio, but it gives you something to think about. And that's, you know, like I said, that's where you kind of need to not have so much of an ego that you feel like you're in the right all the time you Mm. take on that, you know, take on that criticism and adapt. In a, in a way that you think will work.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I um went to a few interviews and when they don't work out, you, you can quite often feel disheartened. Yes. Um, but what I found was the most beneficial thing was actually just ask, you know, why didn't I get that role? Can I have some feedback on my application, my portfolio, my resume, um, even my interview? And a lot of those, a lot of that feedback, I bled into my future interviews, which I found very helpful. So I would definitely recommend that to anyone who's going to interviews, Um, yeah if you don't get the job that's not the end of it ask them and usually people are very much willing to give you a bit of feedback
1: yeah of course and you know that's kind of life like you are going to get rejections and it's just a case of like you know how how are you going to move it on from there at that point you know maybe maybe that just wasn't meant to be on that day maybe it leads to better things that's we just don't know and there's no point being caught up in it and being resentful about maybe not getting the ideal position that you want and Mm -hmm who knows where it will lead it's that's that's what it's all about <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah that's great um you've mentioned vr how do you see ai affecting the you know the future of transportation and the future of your role as a as a design manager
1: yeah let's see it's a bit of a hot topic at the moment really isn't it it's, um i can i can definitely see value in it and we like we've been playing around with it a bit in-house mm. um I'm not totally convinced it's there at the moment but I think in terms of maybe like idea generation okay there's there's definitely something there mm. Um, but that I think designers always having that ability to transform a 2D image into a tangible product that can be manufactured that mm. meet all the constraints and requirements and production processes regulatory standards is it's still basically a core skill of understanding that might not ever be replaced i think people should approach ai as like an enabler to make their job more efficient that's Mm -hmm. that's that's kind of where i sit with it now i'm quite interested in for example with the vr how how ai can actually be implemented into it and i saw this really good um youtube video a while ago where this guy has developed basically a paper airplane and he's integrated chat GPT into it. And, you know, it's flying over some city and you type in a different location and that then talks to chat GPT that talks to Google and then basically moves the paper airplane into a new position and gives you a fun fact about the location. That, that you imagine doing that manually and trying to program all of that mm. is, it's not necessarily going to be a good use of mm times so i definitely think um it will have its it will have pretty tangible uses in the future Mm. um i think it is good at the moment in terms of enabling people to be a little bit more creative in terms of how they explore initial ideas Mm. um and i'm seeing some really good stuff uh, in terms of bringing those 2d images and pulling them into like depth depth maps and Watching people 3D model over the top of them to you know translate that 2D into the 3D mm. purely via AI, and you know that's that's super interesting. Mm. Um, how it gets implemented in studios at the moment is, you know, I think that's still to be still to be found out.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting time to be a designer. Uh, I think I even um, was watching a video the other day about CGI, and this this guy was saying how basically his job as a cgi artist where he would you know sit in hours and hours cropping um you know an alien into this scene has been pretty much replaced by this ai that can do it in like like an hour just sitting there doing the calculations but like then the end of the video he was talking about how basically this means now that he could make a whole movie in like the span of a few weeks instead of a few years and i think that's a good way to look at it like you know, it's not going to replace the role you're in. It's just going to make this role you're in so much more efficient and allow you to, you know, spend more time in the other parts that will just make your your role even you know, even better. So,
1: yeah, exactly. It's kind of like where, you know, where does your value or where does your interests mm-hmm. lie? And do you want to spend three days Photoshopping out of background and bringing something else back in to, you know, to then achieve what you want? Or can you, you know, ask the AI to just replicate what you know i've got this image i want to replace the background with this it, it, it just it, the only you know blurred area is really about the rights and usage Then mm. i I personally don't know what the answer is at the moment in that yeah. so that's a real yeah that's a real blurred area i think at the moment that mm. either needs to be um well it seems like a lot of reg, you know standards and regulations are coming out in regards to um the rights of ai images mm how that develops, I, I just don't know at this point, but I'm definitely waiting to see what we can do with it.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's gonna be really interesting to see how the whole legal side of things goes as, you know, it's it's a hard debate because on one hand, adding regulation could completely defeat the whole like progression of AI yeah. um, because it'd be very hard to regulate where your images are coming from and what percentage of it is being used. And um, the other hand, like not regulating at all, is that having an effect on creatives? Um, and you know the rights of creators
1: yeah exactly and you know i think you just got to put yourself in that shoe where would you want to be the person who's when you know you sat there looking at images and suddenly there's an ai generated image that looks just like yours or Mm. there's certain art styles that seem to be you know copied so Mm. to speak or please produce an image in the style of so and so and you know these these people have worked pretty hard to hone their skills and develop their their unique style and market themselves in that way so in that sense yeah it does take away you know i think a bit of um a bit of creativity and i I wouldn't yeah necessarily if it happened to me feel great about it that's for Mm -hmm. sure
0: yeah you know it's definitely a difficult difficult conversation it'll be interesting to see where it turns um what do you what do you see as the the biggest evolutions in design in the coming years and how can how can we as designers stay up to date with these evolutions and make sure we you know continue developing our skills to be relevant in the coming years
1: um I think one of, well I think there's probably two things one of them is people are becoming a lot more um sort of multi-skills so not just the tendency to maybe, you know, do do the product design and the initial you know, mechanical engineering of that, but, you know, there's that visualization side of it. There's that understanding of, you know, how to interact with suppliers and mm. understanding manufacturing processes. So I think if people are essentially like a bit of a Swiss army knife, that mm. is, is going to probably be a little bit more of an expectation. Um, mm. Certainly what we try and do here is, you know, we're a very multifunctional team. Um, whereas like when I graduated you tend to have okay that guy just does CAD that guy just does mm. sketchy workshops so I definitely see there's like a blurred boundary but you know the boundaries are starting to blur between those those sort of areas of product development um, I think the other thing as well and the expectation from a lot of the client side of it is that understanding of you know sustainable sustainable um, design practices but also Mm. materials fabrics and processes i think that's going to be the biggest you know the biggest advantage is really understanding how to how to leverage an understanding of you know that sustainable design as a practice Mm. and how it can be implemented early on in the design processes as companies become more and more you know attuned to that need
0: Mm. yeah definitely do you think the Sustainable future is a near reality, or do you think it's going to be a long road to get to where to where we're looking to get?
1: Um, I think the interest is definitely there. I mean, personally, I'd like to see it, you know, instilled now mm. as, as possible. Like, I think it's, I think it's almost mandatory for you know, it is mandatory in my mm. eyes designers to, you know, understand the effects of the products that they're designing, not, mm. not just right now for the client but later on in life where at end mm. of life you know when that product's being disassembled or you know pulled apart and I'd, I'd like you know the turning point for me is basically when I'm when I had my daughter and I thought well I need to I need, I need to design you know to leave the world in a in a better place than mm. when I came to it for, for her sake not not for mine mm. I think it's that you know that's that and just like we we're talking about with the trains you know they'll be around for 30 or 40 years and mm. may or may or may not live outlive you know where i am at the moment and it's it's understanding that long long-term impact and how can we accelerate you know how can we pull that pull that back to a point where you know we are working in a more sustainable way and that's mm. i think that's why you kind of have to fight your corner for it as well
0: mm. yeah definitely um what what advice would you would you give to to anyone looking to pursue a a career in design? Would you recommend that they move into an in house role like what you're in currently, or would you recommend they they pursue you know manufacturing or um, consultancy? Like you know how would you how would you recommend that someone pursue that kind of direction in the future?
1: Um, I probably wouldn't recommend narrowing yourself too mm. quickly. I think um, gaining that experience not just in you know like a large corporation or a small manufacturer i I think you just don't limit yourself too early on in Mm. in your career just try and gain that experience and if you feel like you have an interest in a certain area then just Mm. do it it's you know it's not really you know when you come out of university at what 21 22 your career is not exactly defined to that point really Mm. is it and i would just just follow what follow what you want to do if it doesn't work out then there's always you know there's always other companies out there that are doing good things mm. um I, just from my own experience the the you know working in the large consult large companies and consultancies i've lent towards consultancy work because it's more varied mm. the skills that i picked up and the understanding in in a large multinational company was where i felt i developed my most you know like critical thinking and understanding of mm you know, how to engage with people on different levels. Mm. So there's there's benefits to all of it.
0: Yeah. I suppose that's the benefit of being an industrial designer or being in a design field is just, it's so broad. You can really, yeah. you could be designing a train in one role in the next role, you could be designing furniture, you know, and, and having that flexibility is is what keeps the job so amazing.
1: Yeah, mm. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's what keeps us um, interested as well. Like there's like I said, there's always something to learn from other sectors and other mm other areas of design, whether, you know, whether it's medical device design, consumer products, mm. aviation, cars, as, you know, if you can kind of cross-pollinate those skill sets and understanding, then you know you're gonna you're gonna put yourself ahead of the competition in terms of finding a job and finding mm. something you, you know, really, really enjoy.
0: Mm. Yeah, definitely. Well yeah, well thank you so much for coming on today, Sam. And it's been really nice to get your perspective and you know learn more about your your long career across multiple countries and yeah thank you so much
1: yeah thank you and yeah keep up i'll keep up with the podcasting as well because i'll definitely be listening to the future episodes and um keep in touch if you're ever you know if you're ever down in sydney i'll get you get you to come in and have a look around
0: Yeah, sounds good thanks mate. have a good one all right cheers for that